Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Deborah Brown is an artist and curator in New York City who works in Bushwick, Brooklyn. She received her BA from Yale University and her MFA from Indiana University. She's had solo shows at Art3, Leslie Heller, Flecker Gallery, Active Space, and an upcoming solo show at Geary Contemporary next year. She's had over 60 group exhibitions, including shows at Mike Weiss, Bravin Lee, Life on Mars Gallery, Odetta, Lou Magnus, the Islip Art Museum, Jeff Bailey, and many others. Her work has been covered in Artnet, Art News, The Wall Street Journal, The Elle Magazine, The New York Times, and several other publications. Seven years ago, Deborah founded Storefront Bushwick, a Brooklyn gallery dedicated to showing emerging artists' work, along with revisiting the work of established artists. The gallery ran until recently and helped launch the careers of many young artists in Brooklyn. She's long been a pioneer and advocate for artists and the arts in Bushwick. I met up with Deborah at her Bushwick studio, and we talked about her early days in school, her move to New York in the 80s, running an artist-run space, and her approach to painting over the years. Here's our conversation. But it is an amazing vehicle, isn't it? Yeah, it I is. think the art world really took to Instagram, and it's so perfect for visual um, postings that it's it, it's addictive. I don't I don't know if you find it as addictive as I do, but it's um, I think it's pretty great way to actually not just see things in on your phone but also um, get an idea of what's going on in the rest of the art world and yeah. it's encouraged me to see shows that I might have not been aware of because yeah. you just get this constant stream of images well that's the healthiest version of it I think because if there's I'm sure there's plenty of people who see things only on their phones and then that's not the best way to encounter work but if it triggers you to go see it well, a lot of times you see where people are posting from, and so you see that they actually are at the show, unless they've figured out a way to do a, yeah, a workaround yeah, <laughs> about yeah. that. So you see that, oh, this artist friend of mine was at this gallery, or this big collector, or, and it's, I mean, the networking aspect of it is also fantastic, but it's just really been great to kind of get a kick in the pants to go out and see stuff, too, I think. Yeah, yeah I, it's funny, because, you know, the Freeze Art Fair was just up, and we were there, and... I feel like around art fairs times, I will turn off the feed or not pay attention to it too much because there's certain things that you want to see fresh, you know? Oh, that's interesting. And there's always these pieces at the fairs that are like, it's almost like they're made to be photographed. And if you see it five or six times in your feed before you go see it, it's kind of like, oh yeah, that piece, you know? Whereas if you go there and you haven't seen it, it kind of hits you. That is true. I think there's that whole debate about whether there's a whole bunch of art not just made for art fairs, but to be Instagrammed yeah. <laughs> like while the they're at the art fair. Have you seen 
um, the amount of mirrored artwork? Oh, yes. I mean, it's it, it definitely bright and shiny objects. Yeah. Are, um, yeah. Uh, it's, but that's, um, that's existed, too, like in trailers for movies. Sometimes I won't want to see the trailer because it's so long. And it basically, at the end of it, I'm like, did I just see the movie? Yeah, like it's the, a real buzz killer in, yeah, in the, your own the imagination. The version of it or something. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. so um, what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about your beginnings, because I know a lot about you from a certain point, but I feel like I don't know too much about your early days. Well, I have been here a long time, and um, I think but growing that, up. Oh, growing up, growing up. Way well, back. I'm from California. I'm mm -hmm. a fifth generation Californian, which means my family actually came to California in the 1850s. Oh, really? <laughs> so there's early days for you. They yeah. were pioneers, and. Um, so I grew up in uh, Pasadena. Uh -huh. um, my father was president of Caltech. So I grew up in a really unusual atmosphere, which is to be uh, in Southern California, which you think of as being la la land and uh, land of non-intellectual activity right. in a very intellectual place and a kind of temple of science. Yeah. Uh, and it was a great place to grow up because uh, I had access to a lot of the stuff that was going on on campus. And Caltech actually had an art gallery that showed early uh, that showed work by Ed Keenholz and mm -hmm. Wallace Berman and um, Bruce Connor and I mean just very avant-garde artists and so as a kid I had exposure to that and yeah. the Pasadena Art Museum at that time was not taken over by Norton Simon and had a really avant-garde collection so they showed Robert Irwin and Andy Warhol and it was just really a cool place to grow up. And like, you remember? You yes. Know, oh, yeah. I mean, I was really interested in art from an early age. And so for me, those were the immediate resources in yeah. my backyard. And they literally were in my backyard in the case of the, the gallery at Caltech. Yeah. So it was a really neat place to grow up, actually. Right. I had access to art, even though I wasn't living on the East Coast and with the big museums. But did your father teach or was he? No, he was the president. He so was, he, oh, okay. he is a physicist. He's still alive. And uh, Caltech, you know, has always had a science, a scientist be yeah. at the helm because of the nature of the institution, because it's such a serious um, right. place for science. So uh, he presided over this small place, but in Pasadena, it was a it was a important place, and it was it was just a really great way to grow up. I yeah. had a lot of access to things that. Um, piqued my intellectual curiosity, even though I'm not a scientist. It was just a super place to grow up in academia. When you went to school as a kid, were you, obviously you were interested in art, you said, but were you also interested in science and things like that? Or You know, not so much science, but definitely the humanities. Yeah. I mean, literature and history and languages. Mm -hmm. uh, and I went to a school that was close to Caltech and um, I could walk to school and growing up in Southern California was just really a neat experience. Yeah, I'm sure you and then I that weather. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've often wondered, like, why don't I live there now? But <laughs> I think I went east to school. I went to Yale as mm -hmm. an undergrad. So I was at that, I mean, I'm old, so I was in the fifth class of women. Yale had just gone co-ed. Mm -hmm. And I went to Yale because of the art school. The art school is the MFA program, which has this fantastic reputation. And I was an undergrad, so I have a liberal arts degree. I wasn't in the School of Art, but yeah. we had access to a lot of the same faculty and the professional aspect of the art school kind of cast a big shadow on the undergrad program. So my classmates were like Peter Halley mm -hmm. and um, George Negroponte. I mean, we were undergrads majoring in art, but we had access to these um, 
graduate students who are very serious and oriented toward New York. Yeah. And so it got me thinking about what it would be like to be an artist in New York. And that's where I headed. I mean, at that time, like Al Held was teaching at Yale. He was alive. And uh, I mean, there were people like that who were coming in as visiting artists from New York every week as well. So it was just a really lively place yeah. for you, if you wanted to direct yourself in a professional way, even at an early age, you could mm -hmm. as an undergrad. And that was true in all kinds of things like music and um, drama. You know, the presence of the grad schools reflected onto the undergraduate program. Yeah, and I'm sure the museums and the oh. all the resources there are pretty amazing. Oh, yeah. I mean, at Yale, you could go to the art museum and ask to see, like, the entire suite of Goya etchings, mm -hmm. you know, which they have, like, tucked away. Yeah. And you could hold them and look at them in a controlled environment. And then the, the Yale Art Gallery has an incredible collection from, you know, soup to nuts. Yeah. It's really fabulous. And then the Mellon Center for British Art was being built across the street when I was an undergrad now. Of course, it's been up and running for a long time. Beautiful, both buildings designed by Louis Kahn. Mm -hmm. So it was just a really great, it was kind of a counterpart to growing up in Southern California where you don't have that many cultural resources, at least not in the 70s and 60s when I was there and then coming to the East Coast. And so it was it was just really great bookend. Yeah, did and you it got have, me thinking about New York. Yeah. Did you go to Beinecke for the rare books? You know, I've been in the building a bunch of times, but I never made a request to access anything specific. I, I did at the art gallery where you yeah. could ask for things that were sequestered. Yeah, but they have amazing, I guess that's true of all museums, amazing amount of like prints, works on paper, things that never see the light of day. Yeah, and actually someone had come and robbed stuff from Beinecke by like ripping pages out of rare books and taking them and selling them. So I mean, oh it, it's like a it's like a place that they've got to, I think, keep on lock and yeah. key because they have amazing things. You're right. And they don't come to the attention, I guess, except of scholars or people who are requesting them, uh, aside from the exhibits they do. Yeah. But, I, I mean, Yale is just an incredible place, huge resources beyond the capacity of anybody to access, you know, in normal undergraduate right, time. Right, <laughs> yeah. So it, it, it basically also gave you license to say, I'm going to move to New York and just do this. I really wanted to, and but I went to grad school after going to Yale. I went to Indiana University mm -hmm. for two years to get an MFA, and then I got on the teaching track. Yeah. So I got a tenure-track job at Carleton College in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was, I think, a great opportunity for me because in the, in the late 70s, and probably even now, there are just not that many teaching jobs for artists. And I was young. I, was, I had graduated from Yale in three years. Mm -hmm. So when I left Indiana, I was 21. I had an MFA at 21. So I was still, I mean, when I think about that, it's hard to believe. I started my college teaching job at 21. And wow. I stayed for six years until I got tenure, and then I quit, and then I moved to New York. So I came here when I was 28, after having gotten tenure at this liberal arts college. Uh, what got me here was teaching at Yale in the summers. I taught at Yale uh, in a summer course. And I lived in New York like the last few years of when I was still at Carleton. Mm -hmm. And that got me thinking that I could do it. Yeah. So when I got tenure, I quit, and I came here for good having been here just in the summers. And uh, it was, I mean, I, it wasn't as overwhelming as it might have been had I not spent the summers here, kind of having a studio and mm -hmm. getting used to the idea of living in New York. And in the late, in the early 80s, it was not that expensive to be here. I mean, this was before New York was still coming out of the 
uh, financial crisis of the mid-70s. Remember the Ford to City New York drop dead or mm -hmm. whatever the yeah, yeah. when New York was in bankruptcy <laughs> and the Daily News headline was Ford to City drop dead. Um, so it's, it, New York was a totally different, I mean, I'm sure every older person thinks and says that New York was a very different place, but it was. Yeah. It was a lot less expensive and it was a lot less desirable and the yes. art world was much smaller. There was no Brooklyn. I mean, many things were different. Yeah. And so it was sure a lot easier to get in here. It probably wasn't that um, safe in certain areas. No, I mean it was it was a really it was a total the East Village was was filled with heroin addicts and yeah. I mean it was a very different totally different place right. and a lot in some ways much more fun yeah. but uh, I think it's it allowed me to get in here in a way that I probably wouldn't have otherwise yeah. had I come later. When you first started teaching, you must have been teaching people that were almost your age. Yeah, I was, and I was very unprepared. I mean, I was I didn't have I, one thing that I think teaching gave me was the ability to speak in front of other people and have yeah. the ability to feel comfortable uh, addressing an audience in a kind of lecture format and also organizing my ideas in some way that made sense pedagogically. Because mm -hmm. I think as an artist, you are you have your own ideas and you have your own practice. And at that point for me, it was very young. But I didn't have, I think, a sense of how people assimilated information that I might want to impart. And yeah. that's a big part of teaching, especially yes. liberal arts graduate uh, undergraduates who are not necessarily going to have a career in art. You right. want to have a way to kind of connect with them and organize your ideas in a way that makes them accessible to people who aren't going to be artists. So it was a, it was a really great experience in a lot of ways, but yeah. I was that's a learning special on challenge. that job. At that age, that's a special challenge to, especially to work with, you know, people who might not choose art as, as their course, but tying together ideas that they can learn by pushing creative boundaries and, you know, taking risks and, and making creative work and how that can, be a very useful tool in whatever else they're doing in their life. I wish I had had the presence of mind to put it that way, because that's a really good way to, to, I think, articulate the value right. of art in a liberal arts curriculum. So I, I, unlike teaching like you in a university where you have this BFA program and MFA program, I had not even come from that environment. I had come from a liberal arts environment, so maybe I was better suited to being in the yeah. teaching circumstances that I found myself. And I related to the students on that level that they were getting a liberal arts degree and art would be a part of their life maybe but not the whole part and but I, I was the school really took a chance on me I think I was very young to be in that situation and you know I don't know how it, I mean I guess it worked out okay I learned a lot and yeah. I hope that I was able to contribute while I was there but when yeah. I, I realized that if I didn't leave at that point I would be there forever and I mean, I might move laterally. I had other teaching offers from other schools that were similar, uh, which I chose not to take because I thought they would just be kind of the same thing. And so I realized I was going to be choosing between what I ended up doing and then or staying and teaching. It wasn't possible to go back and forth between Minnesota yeah, and New York so or some other place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I imagine what, what you lose with the value of experience when it comes to teaching you gain in sort of energy, right? Because you're just out of the gate, pretty much. So you must have had some, yeah, some and good yeah. energy into it, right? I, I mean, you wonder, the like, what the hell did I bring to that experience? <laughs> I think I, I, I really wonder when I think back on it, because it was so long ago. Um, I, I definitely was trying hard and into it, and 
I I did have a lot of energy. Yeah. But I realized that I I, I mean, it's teaching in that environment requires a certain level of empathy and understanding of how exactly what you were saying how art can fit into a much bigger picture yeah and I think I was very doctrinaire I think I was really too hard and trying to get people to look harder and try harder and I, I mean I, I, I was not a, I was intense yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I would maybe I would be that way now too but I'm not sure what I, I think I would bring a totally different experience to it now well, you so you. <laughs> I hope so, God. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> so you brought all that intensity to the streets of crime-riddled and drug and Northfield, Minnesota. No, no, no. into into uh, oh, New, York. New York. Yeah. New York. Yeah. No, I was a deer in the headlights when I got here. I can remember walking down the street, kind of smiling, and strangers would look at me like weirdos and perverts, and and try and engage me, and I would not have a sense of what that was about. And I mean, it seems like really. Where did Hard you live? I, I, well, when I first came here, when I was teaching at Yale, I rented the same studio from an artist who went to Maine for the summer, and it was on 20th Street between 5th and 6th. Mm -hmm. And when I had to get my own place, I moved to a place on Chamber Street, right near City Hall, uh, 96 Chamber Street. Mm -hmm. And, of course, it was an illegal sublet. So I didn't understand why it is that every day somebody came to the building and would open the door and then look inside on the stoop mm -hmm. and then leave. And he, this person was checking for mail that was just thrown oh, in yeah. through the door and seeing who his names were on. I mean, it was so primitive then that you actually looked at mail, right. you, you know, that you wouldn't the have surveillance. <laughs> right, I mean, things that just seem like right. out of the Stone Age. Yeah. Uh, so I immediately started getting eviction notices and I mean, it was a terrifying thing. Eventually I ended up getting my own lease on a building that's been torn down in Tribeca, it was on a street called York Street, mm -hmm. which is only two buildings yeah, wide. It's between Lisbonard and um, uh, and Varick. And I lived in a small loft that the owner lived in also. Mm -hmm. uh, for How long a were you there? It, for about four or five years in the mid 80s. And you worked there? Yeah, yeah, it was a tiny loft and I had a small studio there and that was actually pretty nice I worked at the Modern Language Association that was my day I had a day job yeah and I would work on weekends and at night in my studio so did you feel like you were getting engaged in the community and meeting people and or we did you feel kind of secluded I, I think when you move somewhere you would usually initially feel a little you know alienated or just kind of like okay how do I get how do I dig oh, into the yeah. soil? Oh, no, yeah, no, it was, I've, I mean, the art world was only Manhattan, and uh, for, I'm not sure how I managed to do this, but I started to show at Tibor Dinage. They uh -huh. took me on as one of their artists, like when Tibor was still alive. Yeah. And this was in 1985. And they were in Soho? on. No, they were on 57th Street. Oh, they were that's in 41 right. yeah, West yeah. 57th. Um, they're still on 57th Street, but on, on uh, Fifth Avenue, they're on that right. 740. 24 building, I think, mm -hmm. uh, and that was a huge thing. John Lee, who's Brahmin Lee Gallery now, John Pusley was the director, so that was like a huge catapult into the yeah. system, and I had four or five shows there. And how did you? How did that happen? I'm trying to remember. Um, Studio visit. I, Do you remember that part of it? I, I had been showing when I first came here with a gallery that was not really so great. Mm -hmm. It was on 57th Street, and 
I don't even know how I got in that gallery. Uh, and when and they closed, and the person who was doing their photography for the gallery told me that Tibor had asked where I was going. Now, how Tibor had any idea who I was, I do not know. But then I contacted them and got John over to see my work, and mm -hmm. then Tibor came over and they took me on. And what does your work look like at this point? Um, I'm always painting things. I'm always painting images. I mm -hmm. was painting um, cityscapes like that were kind of like... Um, do you know Martha Diamond? Do you know what yeah, her work? Uh, they looked a little bit like her work, like mm -hmm. kind of vertiginous buildings with really brushy strokes. Mm -hmm. So I had a show of that work with Tibor and then several others that followed. So it was, it was a really great place yeah. to be because John was a great director and Tibor was a wonderful link in many ways to the past who also was keeping up with things. And it was good. I mean, Jonathan Lasker was showing there then. Mm -hmm. It's hard to believe, yeah. but there were some really interesting things happening there. Boy, and he's still at it. Oh, he's so good. Yeah. I mean, the last show at Chime and Reed, yeah. I thought was just unbelievable. Yeah, I just saw a really good piece of his at, the, at Freeze. Yes, yeah. I think, right, with a foreign gallery, I think. I don't think it was, I mean, like a European gallery. Yeah, I think gallery. it was. Yeah, it kind of blurs together. But I remember <laughs> seeing a piece of his where it was a little more minimal than his normal work. It was really interesting. But it's yeah. so, his work is specifically interesting, too, to see how a certain... He was such a figurehead of that kind of thick surface abstraction, you know, and then seeing it come around again where that kind of painting is becoming investigated again by younger people. And then mm -hmm. so his works, it, it fits in and then you see it a little differently and you're like, oh, yeah, he was doing that back in the 80s, you know. It's, it's yeah, when it had when a it different cycles. meaning, I yeah. think, because yeah. you, would, you would align his work more with like Peter Halley, right. like this sort of representation of signifiers and how marks could be mm -hmm. like objects and yeah. it, it, you know you're absolutely right I, I mean I think there's a bunch of people who've been resurrected in a way or or refocused by younger people's I mean Kathy Bradford is a great yeah. example of how figurative that kind of figurative painting mm -hmm. became I mean she's always been doing it Judith Lanier there's a there's a number of artists and younger people's work has made their work seem like at the front of things again. yeah but that now when you see painters who are working with like thick surface and gesture and kind of like these um, you know symbolic painted icons in a way <laughs> it, it feels like just a pushback against the flatness of the digital world you know or oh, the zombie something. formalist stuff yeah. I think especially yeah it's, definitely but I mean, you think back, if you have like that kind of memory, like in the early 80s, there was all this German painting mm -hmm. that was, you know, seen as kind of anti-conceptual and um, that there was sort of a backlash against that. And right. I mean, once you're right that you've been when you're around long enough, you see these different things come in and out of focus. Yeah. And the same thing happens in music. I love that. That similarities in music, how. You know, if you look at someone like Ornette Coleman or Free Jazz and then Kamasi Washington now and how it's different, but it's tapping in the same kind of, you know, audio structure and then also social issues at the same mm -hmm. time that are still around and that don't go away, you know, and things cycle. It's uh, the same thing happens in, you know, the world of art. So it's really interesting. That's another challenge of teaching, too, is when you're teaching students who haven't been through that right earlier round of things so their relationship to it is a is based on just looking back at images as opposed to experience of it uh, then, if they even do that yeah, i mean there's true. a lot of yeah. people who's young younger people who and you can understand it because when things sometimes disappear from the art world they are not archived in a way 
like an art history that you can, right. 30 years ago you'd have access to this stuff. It's, it might be gone forever for them and you're bringing it back. But yeah. you're right, then their experience of it is not, not primary. It's just yeah. this visual, but oh, that, what did this mean, you know? Yeah, but that can make, sometimes that, that recipe makes for really interesting work. Same thing with music. It's like you'll get people who are doing, like let's say, stuff that's based on electronic instruments but they don't really know the history of electronica or early mm -hmm. stuff but they'll hear a little bit of it but then they go on to make this weird kind of like new version of it that you could only make if you weren't in that scene or didn't understand it the first time around i guess i guess that that's seems what to be what art is these yeah. days though there's so much of this kind of sampling of right. style or whatever it is whether it's audio style or visual style yeah. without the context that it originally occurred in like because it's all available to us instantly. Yeah. That makes for a really strange it pastiche. It's a, it's a weird collage. But it doesn't mean it isn't without, without meaning because any context provides a certain meaning. So our now context is the meaning, right. I think, and reflects back on these shards or tranches. Yeah. It's, and it happens, that kind of sampling has always happened. It's just probably been a little more unconscious in the past, where you kind of come <laughs> to certain ideas about how <laughs> an image looks based on seeing all this art historical painting over the years, but you may not know all the references, but you see it through other people. So in <laughs> other words, like if you're influenced by Picasso and then he, you're not even realizing that that was, you know, the image that he painted was influenced by, you know, Rubens and that <laughs> was influenced by whatever, like it goes back. But now, like you're saying, it's everything's so available instantaneously. And sort of deracinated in a yeah. way, because I think when you, when you were just talking about this cultural legacy, like like someone who was German or whatever would have received you know, the legacy of being German and having German painting and music and all of that, and it's like osmosis. But yeah. now you have to willfully go and select like from a whole buffet of things right. that might have nothing to do with your heritage. It could be the oh, yeah. Asian culture or what, I mean. Aboriginal paintings and then the quilts from G's Bend or, you know, like, <laughs> right. like this amalgamation of culture <laughs> and imagery that you just respond to visually, but has like a total mix mash of like, you know, influence and history to it. It's interesting. But I mean, it makes me wonder whether any artist can have only anything other than that, like that there is only that kind of yeah. influence now, which is this huge array of yeah. offerings I think to which you have a, like a attenuated relationship or different relationship. Right. Like well, that's a very strange thing. Maybe that's what, why there are all these bright and shiny objects that free. That's <laughs> true. That's, that is things true. Things that are just immediately appealing to yeah. the senses. And, and I think it probably happened when video first became ubiquitous, when like it was part of, became part of people's processes. And everyone after that must have thought like, this is influenced by video or like TV or mm -hmm. commercialism or, you know, speed of images. And that you know, got blown out of the water, basically. Everything after video became, had video's imprint on it. Mm -hmm. And now it's like the internet. Yeah, exactly. So you can't really see the total effect of it yet, but, you know, it's probably, part of it is the, this, just the sheer variety of it, things that you see when you go around to something like an art fair. Mm -hmm. Like, it's crazy, the diversity of everything you see. But m maybe that's a great thing, though. It's been that way for a while. I mean, yeah. remember how in the 70s there was all this, well, hand-wringing against pluralism? Right. Like, because before there had been these courtly styles presided mm -hmm. over by critics whose 
iron, you know, fists or texts ruled what was acceptable and what wasn't. And then, I mean, if you hear somebody like David Sally talk about what a huge thing it was to overthrow that, and then suddenly other artists from the past, like Picabia, became part of what you could even talk about or draw on. It wasn't taboo anymore. Right, but so many things were. Like the idea that something is taboo, it's pretty hard to imagine that now. What would be unacceptable? I mean, like if you look at the new Kehendi Wiley paintings, like those look really kitschy. But yeah. that's that kitsch is now. I mean, or or like Venus over Manhattan having a show of Bernard Buffet. I mean, yeah. some of those paintings are like it's really amazing. You would have said that was really bad art a while ago. You could never have considered that. And now, I mean, I mean, it's it really is a, an interesting climate. Your students must have a an interesting time trying to make sense of all of it. Yeah, I don't envy. The navigating those <laughs> waters. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just as like I think about kids growing up in school, so let's say a kid in high school today with social media, I do not envy that pressure that puts on you growing up. Can you I, imagine your social life being broadcast on the internet to everyone and then the sort of, you know, removal, bullying, like this, like the secondhand bullying? No, it sounds I, I horrible. It. Yeah. I mean, at, this, at the same time, though, that it, when you think about it for artists, like it's this huge tool mm-hmm. that allows you to curate yourself and reach people you could never have reached easily yeah. <laughs> before. And so I'm thinking of it as this wonderful thing mm-hmm. that is like let a hundred flowers bloom or whatever right, right. <laughs> the Mao thing was. Like, But from a young person's point of view, someone who's less able to kind of control that it must be just horrible and frightening I think for us maybe because we've lived without it but for those who've lived with it or it's always been there you just learn somehow how to navigate it you know it becomes intuitive to a certain extent that's why it's always harder for like the older generation to look at it and you know (laughs) what I'm saying yeah I mean they're using it for their whole life but for somebody like me I'm using it for my work and also to kind of keep up with other people's work and for that it just seems like an unmitigated yeah. great you can kind of you know put it in its spot like this is for that you know whereas yeah. if you're 12 it's probably everything yeah that could be <laughs> really overwhelming and I mean in the way that the art world is kind of overwhelming now like I mean it is I I it's probably very hard to be starting out here now yeah. I don't know what it, I can't even imagine it's but maybe they're better equipped than I was when I came yeah. here from Minnesota. Well, I think the, the, the difficult, I would imagine that the, the difficulty of so many more people in the game and so many more, you know, like finding a difficulty to fit in with the sheer numbers of all the people is balanced by the opportunity, the, the sort of right. advantage of, you know, opportunity of getting your work out there. But well, I, I worry that it, there's a watering down. Like there's this double-edged sword because then there's possibility of it being watered down, like everything, and like the inverse of your, you know, 100 flowers blooming. Like the inverse of that is I can't imagine nowadays people having a like a serious ideological view on a certain kind of artwork. Like abstraction is mm-hmm. like the avant-garde. That's where we find out the real about work or you know what I mean like I can't imagine that happening anymore like the no I think that goes back to what we were talking about earlier about the taboo there have to be taboos in order for that to be to have positions there have to be things that are seen as retrograde or like repressive or uncool or whatever stigma 
and they're just there isn't anything that's in that category yeah. and when the most advanced galleries resurrect things that might have had that label on them and put them out there then you know that the landscape is always shifting right so i think it is pretty hard to have a polemical position I mean, you can have a personal position, I think, but it's pretty That's hard to have say. one that dictates to others and and uh, restricts what you feel is legitimate yeah. as a practice. Yeah, you just like really have to believe in what you're doing. I, I, I but the good thing is that I think there are people who will get behind it. Yeah. It's there's, I mean, it isn't that there's any less of a pyramid because it seems like it's clear that there is, but there are just many more ways in to be scene and the artist run thing has mm -hmm. been really big in different places like Williamsburg in the 90s and in Bushwick and surrounding areas you know in the last 10 years yeah. and that's really given some people a platform which I think is great I mean I've shown a couple of artists who definitely have gone on to have commercial representation and mm -hmm. have done well so when I had storefront so yeah. that was kind of exciting to think that you gave somebody a chance right when did that start? So you're here, you're, start, you're showing your work, that's going well. Yeah, I'm going to be showing, I'm showing with a gallery called Geary, which mm -hmm. is fairly new. They're on Varick, just below Houston, and mm -hmm. I, have a sh I have the opening show in September. Nice. So they've been doing the art fairs. They did NADA, Miami, they did Dallas, and they do Expo Chicago, and mm -hmm. they've been in their space for three years on, in kind of western Soho. Yeah. So they're new. I was, as you know, with Mike Weiss um, very briefly until he closed mm -hmm. in October. So and before that with Leslie Heller, mm -hmm. I had like five shows. So I've had the chance to show my work and I will again, which is really great. And when did you start showing people's work? Like when did that idea pop I, in your head? Well, I came to Bushwick in 2005 and uh, in 2000. I think the end of 2009, early 2010, I started a gallery with Jason Andrew and we called it Storefront, and it was on Wilson Avenue uh, near the Morgan Stop. And we rented a storefront space, mm -hmm. a little tiny space. It was only about 400 square feet. And That's on the small side. <laughs> yeah, but it was great because there were only, I think we were like among five artist-run galleries, and those were the only kinds that were out there then. Yeah. So we had a lot of attention and interest disproportionate to our size mm -hmm. and location in every way um, we ran it in a very professional way I think mm -hmm. so we uh, did solo shows and group shows and then Jason left and I kept it going for another two years but we had reviews from the New York Times from Art in America I mean it was we had the it was really incredible what kind of attention we attracted and I think it kind of spurred other people to start spaces in Bushwick too yeah. and then I bought this building in 2013 and I maintained both spaces for a while and then just ran the gallery out of here mm -hmm. for another two years and then I stopped mm -hmm. so it was like six years total between two spaces yeah. and I kind of felt I had said everything I wanted to say mm -hmm. as a person who was organizing shows not to mention just the energy it took to do them and the logistics and all of that um, it was a huge amount of fun and I loved it yeah but I, I kind of ran out of gas I mean yeah. I think artists do it for a time and it's rare to find somebody who's in it forever right uh, yeah that's it's exhausting and it's it, it requires you to wear two different hats which I think is in some cases is not possible I mean you artists really deserve to be represented by mm -hmm. someone I think and I was not representing artists, I was just doing shows. Yeah. So that's great, it, got, it does get attention. Yeah. 
and some, as I said, some of the people I showed did go on to have be picked up by galleries, which I think was, to me, it was the part of the point, not the only point, but some of it. Yeah, supporting other artists, and at the same time, I'm sure for you, it it just gave you a giant network of, of you know, people that, like friends and fellow artists, and it was it, it was great. Have, it must have fed you in some way too. In right? many ways. I mean, the most important thing I think for me is that I got out and saw so much yeah. work and it made me up my own game because I was always ambitious for my own work and working on it simultaneously and seeing other people's practices, sometimes they were very different than mine, mm -hmm. just made me want to be better and better. And also I was forced to decide which pieces among someone's work I wanted to show and that meant value judgments. So yeah. your eye gets sharper, you make judgments and then you begin to hold yourself to higher standards, so that was fantastic. But at a certain point, it, people began to think of me as a gallery, and that worried me. Yeah. I thought that was a misreading of my original intention, and it, I definitely didn't feel that I was deserving even of being thought of that way, because I didn't devote the same kind of point of view to it as a gallerist does. Yeah. I mean, somebody who's in it as a gallerist is in it for a very different purpose. And I think it's just because it was just you, too, because there's so many artists around space that are collectives. You know, yeah, like, for like good Re reason. Regina Rex and, like, you know, Tiger Strikes Astro, like, places like that. It's just such a large group of people that uh, I think some people may associate, like, oh, you're one of the founders of that gallery, but at the same time, their art practice is, is kind of you know, there too, because it's artist run by a group of artists, you know, where yeah. people might have just associated the space with you, and they know you're an artist as well, but you're doing, basically you were running the show. You know? That's all part of it, I think. And also I think that the people whose work became more successful, um, who were part of these collectives, began to drop away from yeah. the hands-on work. You right. can't do both. It's really, I think it becomes impossible. And uh, so it, it was a great I mean, it energized me in so many ways. Mm -hmm. And I think it was a way to connect with this community because when I first came out to Bushwick, East Williamsburg, you know, uh, 10 or 12 years ago, whatever it was, it, there was a much smaller community of artists. It was a way to organize ourselves and become known to each other yeah. and have some impact on the area and kind of take control of our own destinies and all of that, mm -hmm. all the reasons artists associate together to create social space and opportunities for themselves. But recently, there's. I was also on the community board in Bushwick for 10 years, and I noticed that after an initial, I think, indifference to this new community coming out, a lot of the longtime community members just suddenly had their hair on fire about all these people coming out here, yeah. changing their surroundings. And it became harder for me personally to kind of champion this invasion yeah. and support it in a way that was public. And I felt bad about. I mean, you walk around and you realize we've just unleashed this huge bunch of changes, whether they would have happened anyway or not, I don't know, but the artists certainly accelerate that. And so to be sort of unaware of that and just go on with your own thing in a very public way mm -hmm. is a real thumb in the eye of the community. Right. And I felt really uneasy about that because I was able to see in a way that some people couldn't from being on the community board what What's average happened? people were yeah, thinking, yeah. which is you know, yuck. <laughs> yeah, you're destroying and our, our yes. not the neighborhood, but our version of the neighborhood. Exactly. Yeah. This is not for us. That was the thing I heard over and over again. The store is not for us. This yoga place, this natural yeah. food place, this restaurant, this bar. Yeah, and there was there. a big backlash, yeah. which is certainly continuing. And it'll have, I think, limited effect because it's already 
happened and it's gone. But it's you realize that your activity, which you're having so much fun with, mm-hmm. is might be destroying someone's idea of their home and their environment. Right. And even if they're not being forced to leave, there there are fewer and fewer places where they feel welcome. And so yeah. that was really a downer for me, I think, and caused me to retreat. Yeah, and not I, well, in an explicit way, but you know. Yeah, I think the irony is that artists do like that. That's why they do go to those areas, not just because it's cheaper and rent or whatever, but you do like the local bodega or the place that has like the, you know, the old time restaurant or something like things like that. Whereas the people who come into the community who may not be that way are like, oh, everyone loves organic gluten free delis. Everything costs eight dollars. And you know what I mean? It's just kind of it's inevitable, I think, that the first people to come to a community that has a totally different mix of longtime folks are going to be having an imprint eventually. It's just that they bring in their wake uh, things that are they never intended, I mm-hmm. think, which is what you were saying. They're, yeah. They wanted to blend in or be uh, like a, appreciators of what culture existed already yeah. or what communities existed already. And the next waves are have no interest in that, especially developers. Mm-hmm. I mean, people think developers get to these places first. They do not. They no. get there last. Yeah. They get there way last, and I absolutely know that mm-hmm. from being out here early on. There was nobody like us walking around and developing buildings. That just doesn't happen. Those folks are totally Johnny Come Lately. Yeah, they wait for like the double digits of coffee shops and you know tattoo parlors, and, yeah. and they and have their indexes. They they must. But it's like oh, there's the seventh organic deli. Now, now. we can build a condo on this corner. <laughs> you yeah. know, and that's what happens. I mean, you know, when I was first in the Williamsburg waterfront area, you know, it was so different. And like in the past, I get now I go down there and it's 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 unbelievable how much it's changed. It's changed, I think. Well, I'm sure the same happened with Soho. You know, I'm sure it was this industrial sort of gray wasteland for a long time, and then all of a sudden it became all these shops and stuff. But I feel like in Williamsburg it happened really quickly. I think things happen faster and faster because of social media, and mm-hmm. New York is now perceived as a it's global i mean everything is global and that means the real estate market here can appeal to people in all these other countries and has and that's pushed a lot of people out to our areas here so it's i don't know but it's i mean for a while bushwick seemed like this very interesting place Mm -hmm. where there were a lot of different things going on at the same time yeah and now i don't know if that's so true right well here's the question for you You've, you've been through cycles, like neighborhood cycles and stuff. If you're you know, teaching young students who want to move to New York now, what, do you, what advice do you give them or what do you tell them about? Because it's different. Like when I came in the late 90s, the rent wasn't that bad. Like I had a big studio and it was where I lived and you know, it wasn't legal, but it was, <laughs> it was like 700 a month, which wow. you, you can do that. You know? And I had a lot of space. Now that's, I don't know. What do you tell students who want to move here? They have to come here. They definitely do. If you're ambitious and you want to be, pit yourself against the best, you've got to come here or to some comparable place. And uh, you are going to do whatever you have to to be here. And that might mean moving to a place that's, doesn't have that many artists. Artists always want to be around other artists, but yeah. you may have to strike out to neighborhoods like Newark or Yonkers or, mm-hmm. 
East New York, Jersey City, uh, right? Yeah. Where there may not, you may not, but a lot of people hang with their fellow graduates, and right. that is a, sort of your network and strength. And they might rent studio space together. Yeah, create your own community, and I would say that to even people who don't want to move to places like this, but be your own force for change and action in your own place, mm -hmm. wherever that is. If it's in Erie, Pennsylvania, or Detroit, or whatever, you know, make it happen. Because yeah. that's really what artists did out here in in Bushwick is to make their own galleries, networks, not for profits, social places, like make it happen, and yeah. that way you can I think influence your environment and not just take whatever you're given so I always think it's really interesting that artists don't want to be in places that are kind of in these industrial areas around New York like like Newark or Yonkers there's mm -hmm. a lot of cheaper real estate there yeah. and it's not that far away yeah but I think it's because it's perceived to be just a little bit outside the normal watering think, holes and paths and that and i think there's a, a prevailing fear that like a dealer won't come here well that like, used to I be about brooklyn visit. i mean you yeah. never i know no one people my age the water, right yeah i mean that was seen as the kiss of death there was no brooklyn yeah. art scene i mean and now the most famous artists have their studios out here i mean yeah. rashid johnson is down our block yeah. and plenty of other people too around here so I think that could change. I mm -hmm. think it's with social media and networks, I think you're not tied so much to geography. And I mean, face-to-face -face interactions are still really important, but those locations don't preclude you from getting to the scene you need right. to be in. Yeah, it's funny because whenever someone tells me when I do a, a podcast or when I'm visiting a friend and they're like, yeah, yeah my studio's in Manhattan, I'm always like, what? Oh. <laughs> I know it's it seems unbelievable. Like, really, that's a weird place to have a studio. <laughs> and it's almost reverse, right. like prestige factor, because yeah. it would seem almost like, well, are you a dilettante, right. <laughs> or how could that be? Because yeah. it doesn't make any economic sense to have your studio there. Right, it's almost uh, like the vibe of like, oh, my studio's at the gallery. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in the back. Oh, well, right. You know, it's like a weird vibe. It's like, yeah. do you want to be a little further away than that? But then I guess there's a lot of places upstate or, you know, in other places, too, where people are trying to create those communities. I never know if it's really if like Hudson is really a sustaining mm. environment for like living and working as an artist. I that's I have that question, too. Hudson and Beacon is also yeah. another, I think, because of Dia. And there are a few galleries, certainly in Hudson, mm -hmm. that had a presence in New York, like Jeff Bailey and yeah. others. But uh I, I don't know. I mean, they do the art fairs, I think. Mm -hmm. You have to be in the bigger community space. Yeah. And that's one way to do it, I guess. But yeah. it's, I mean, I know they were driven out by New York's rents. It's just, is that's the bricks and mortar thing. You wonder how long any of these galleries can really. I know. The secondary market must be what's sustaining a lot of people. Yeah, definitely. It's not, you know, it can't be easy. Yeah, and yet these younger galleries are all sprouting up, you know, in Chinatown and especially, yeah. I mean, have you been in that Two Bridges neighborhood? Like a yeah, lot, yeah. There's, that yep. seems to be the next thing. And those are galleries I think that would have been in Bushwick in another time if there wasn't like that outlet. Yeah. So clearly there's, there's an ability to open up there. Yeah, it just mutates, right? Like I feel like it just continually mutates and and changes but it's still there you know but it's interesting to see that the commercial center is always in manhattan it's it, it's like artist studios have left manhattan they're yeah. here yeah 
but not the commercial galleries. They can't be here. Like, there's many galleries in Brooklyn, but they're mostly artist-run spaces, and I don't right. think that they would see themselves as in the same kind of playground as yeah. you know. If you're, it's seen as if you want to be serious as a dealer, you have to be in Manhattan, and somehow they find a way to do it. I guess so. a lot of people buy art or shopping essentially. You like, you, you, know, you stop in Comme des Garcons, and then you go across the street and buy a painting, or. I think there's still, I, I mean, it, collectors clearly come to artist studios in these other places, yeah. but they're somehow, I mean, there's an exception, like Clearing Gallery seems right. to be the one thing I can think of that's... But they're blazed. in Brussels, too. Right. So they might have, yeah, I don't know. And they have a fantastic space out here. It's mm -hmm. not to diminish that, but yeah. they, they don't have... It's like Luring Augustine you don't think of, you know, as existing solely out here. Obviously, right. they have this wonderful space, but it, there's just very few models for having a really high-level, top-of-the-food-chain type operation. Maybe some of that, too, is community in the same sense that artists want those studios around other artists. The dealers want galleries around other galleries. That's why they moved to Soho in yeah. the 70s, but that has been out the window for a while because nobody in Chelsea, I mean, artists didn't really work in those taxi warehouses. Oh, no, no, I mean, I mean dealers want to be around other dealers. Oh, oh, yes. Like, they don't want to be out, like, sort of spread out, like the L.A. model. Like, when you go to L.A. and go to galleries, you're like, this is weird. I have to try to make it to three openings tonight, and they're all 40 minutes away. <laughs> <laughs> Like how do that you is do true. that? So, so here I feel like they just, maybe there's some sort of strength in that community or like having pockets of galleries together. So they feel like you're not a destination, like your space isn't just one destination, but people are walking around and seeing multiple things in the area. So you might right. catch some of the drift, you know? Yeah, I think that's, that's clearly so. I, I, I mean, when Loring Augustine bought their building out here, I thought there'd be a big stampede of dealers. I mean, actually, Leo Kerning is opening in Bushwick. Oh, really? He's closing his space mm -hmm. on 19th Street. Yeah. And the they're, they're coming to the building that um, Transmitter and TSA and uh, Microscope yeah. are in. They're going to take the ground floor slightly to the side where Rob Daoud did that um, um, space available show during Bushwick Open Studios two years ago. It was a big sculpture and painting show. Uh, that his landlord let him use the ground floor of the space to curate in, and yeah. that's the space that Leo's moving into. Are you saying? Are you breaking news on this podcast? That no, Bushwick is the it's, new Chelsea? It's, <laughs> I'm not going to make that argument. I would have made that argument a while ago, but I think I don't really know what to make of that move. Yeah. I mean, but that'll that's interesting. Yeah, it's because he's not. It's not bigger. a secondary space. Yeah. It's his space. So that's true. He's. Uh, I mean, that means his primary market artists are going to have their shows in Bushwick. Mm -hmm. And there's people who go see those shows. I mean, yeah, they show um, a lot of great work. So Yeah. That's interesting. Well, let's talk about your work before we... <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> how, how is it going? I mean, you're prolific. I'm working all the time now that I don't have the responsibility of... Um, curating shows in from for storefront um so is that I, is that like all of a sudden like oh my god all this time <laughs> yeah it was a huge amount of time yeah. it, to get back and it's been good because it coincided with my joining mike wise and yeah. then um i was getting ready for a show in february of this past year which didn't happen and um when mike closed i was able to join geary which is going to be really fantastic for me and so this work is for the show in september so I've been working on this series that I call The Runaways, mm -hmm. um, which is based on a protagonist who has adventures in a kind of um, 
wonderland, which could be industrial or pastoral with various animals that she encounters. And it's kind of based on my experience out here uh, in this industrial business zone mm -hmm. where I found um, several dogs and birds. And um, it's, so it, this, this is kind of a self-figure. Uh, and the paintings are in some way a fantasy of that theme. Mm -hmm. And when did you, so you started this work over? About a year ago. About a year ago? Yeah. And some of them are really, I mean, I'll post pictures if it's okay. I, don't know. I hope you do. Yes, okay. <laughs> That's some people don't like, you know, they want to not Well, I don't think anything. there are any surprises anymore. And since I'm always posting my work, I certainly couldn't hide behind that fig leaf. <laughs> but yeah, but the, your work is, it's so physical that you really do have to see it in person. I mean, seeing it in reproduction is a low, you know, you see it, but then when you see it in person, A, the scale, and then B, just the physicality of the paint, I think is really essential to the viewing of it. Yeah, I've gotten into this thing with the palette knife because I thought it started to think that working with a brush looked kind of old and that working with this more fractured surface um, had a, a feel that was more in line with what I'm seeing and mm -hmm. felt more contemporary. So I've been mixing it up and they, I mean, I think working with a palette knife used to, in my idea, used to be kind of like kitschy and gross and like Bernard Buffet. Yeah. And now I feel like it has a kind of currency. So I, the paintings that I've constructed using it, I feel like have liberated me from a kind of illustrational way of working where you sort of know what it's going to be, the image is going to look like because you're facile at representing it with a brush. Yeah. So it's it's allowed these kind of elements of surprise to come into it for me and getting away from preconceived notions of how things should look. So it's been kind of exciting. I have this show coming up and then um, out of the blue, um, Michelle Gravener is curating a show called American Genre at mm -hmm. Um, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Portland mm -hmm. and it's got 50 artists in it and it's divided into portraits, still life and landscape and it's got some incredible people in it like Henry Taylor and Dana Schutz and Alyssa Nissenbaum and I mean it's and I'm in the portrait part of it so nice. that's going to be this summer and I feel Do like you already have the work picked out for I that? I think or? it'll be this piece with the girl with the bird um, I mean it has to have a figure I think because she's earmarked me for this portraits part yeah. so I'm one of the like 15 or so artists who will be in that section but that makes me feel just really great because someone like that whom I don't know I've never met mm -hmm. is thinking of me as someone who's important who works with figures yeah. and that's kind of the playing field I've put my hat into so right no, that's great uh, I'm excited about that, and that show is going to have a catalog, and um, I think we'll get some attention because of of her stature as a curator as well as an artist. And when, does, when did you say it opens? It opens in July and goes through September. Oh, so it's coming so up. it's coming up. Yeah, that's yeah. Great. What kind of bird is it? Um, it's that's actually a good question. It's some kind of parakeet amalgam. Yeah. I have found parakeets outside, and they're oh really, and brought them into my house and have them really? as pets. So. It's, um, it's the idea that you could encounter these kind of escapees, um, dogs or birds, yeah. and it, it becomes this kind of window into a relationship with nature or yeah. this other world is sort of the, it has a pathos and I think a, uh, there's sort of like an abject quality to these paintings, I think, that 
it resonates with my sensibility. Yeah, that, that's really kind of an interesting parallel to the way that they're made and then that feeling of, you know, finding, coming across something like an animal or a bird, you know. Yeah, exactly. It's been left behind, but then can make a big impact on you or, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. So, and the color in that one too is particularly nice with that kind of coral pink with the green on top of it. Are you, with the palette knife, are you able to play around with layering like that in a different way than you would with the brush? Yeah, because they don't blend yeah. as much. Like if you really glop on the stuff with your knife, you get like this really sharp edge and it just, right. and if you have really good quality paint, it just covers it mm -hmm. right away. And so it's like this frisson, this like fracture that is like really intense. And I feel like that sometimes gets missing when you kind of work with a brush and you're blending and layering and it it just can seem old and like yeah. kind of fuddy-duddy so mm -hmm. for me it was a way to sort of break with um with a certain competence or facility and also to get just like an immediate visual jolt yeah definitely and it's been really fun i mean sometimes i feel like i'm just these weigh a ton these paintings are they're just over and over and yeah, over yeah. and layered and sometimes they feel like they're i just exhausted the surface but then you can bring it back <laughs> yeah. yeah the birch looks really cool too with that thick paint like it just birch is such a physical the bark of it you know you always feel like it's just a second away from peeling off and falling but it's heavy and it's got this history to it which is really translates well to paint i think it's yeah nice. it's a way to kind of engage with the tactility of the world mm -hmm. i think in a way that just feels really immediate and it's like it's like sculpting almost it's connected to your hand and it's just so physical, and I just feel like I want to dive right into that, yeah. the making of it that way. It's just really revitalized my engagement with the surface. I mean, painting is really about active surface, I think, and however, it doesn't necessarily have to be physical, but like visual, and for me, this has been my way into it. Yeah, so last question that I'd like to ask you is, do you work in silence, or do you work with music, or do you work with the radio, or how? What's the audio experience in your studio besides the ice cream truck, Danny, <laughs> from next door? <laughs> which oh, I'm or sure the waves on the weekend? You've probably the, heard the thunk, thunk, oh, the bass. Yeah. Oh my God, it's crazy out here now. Everybody has a rave space. Oh, like all God. these defunct buildings are. Yikes. I don't know if you can hear them, but the paper box and the yeah. Mona Lisa guys are really ramped I kinda, up. I don't have the late night hours I used to, let's just say. They're on the weekends during the um, day because they go 48 hours oh, Friday yeah. night to Sunday when people start to stagger out and see family weekends. Get the yeah. I'm avoiding the riffraff. <laughs> it's a whole different crew out here. Yeah. That's when my building gets graffitied and oh, it's like a lot of... Anyway, um, I am a Wagner nut. Nice. I'm like a crazy Wagner fan. So I listen to things like Parsifal, The mm -hmm. Ring, and they're like five and six hours long. So I'll queue them up on YouTube um, and I'll just listen to the whole thing. And yeah. it's very emotional. Like everything is in Wagner, every human emotion, every triumph, debasement, abasement, lust, mm -hmm. love, greed, I mean, hate. And the, the music is just like um, hypnotic and, uh, and dreamlike. Yeah, and it's great for painting because I feel like these are the emotions I'm trying to get at in my work. I mean, not maybe at that lofty height, but it's it's to me it's the soundtrack I want. And yeah. so I'm in the past and in that 
this world of, of, of um, and you know, and other times I'll listen to um, public radio yeah. and the talk shows and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But when I'm not listening to that, I'll queue up Wagner. Yeah, specifically. Like, yeah, I know the Ring go? and Parsifal. I mean, I we were going to Bayreuth again this year. Bayreuth is like the Wagner Festival where mm -hmm. you're with these other insane people listening to six-hour operas and. It's a really, it took me a long time to develop that taste, but I'm now, I'm just totally into it. And it's not for everybody, but yeah. it's definitely for me. Because I feel like it's it's like the most like intense human emotions are in these things. Yeah. And that's and the kind of stuff I like. <laughs> yeah. Well, you have a pretty big space. Do you, so you work specifically in one area and then you move the paintings out and see them differently? Yes. Is that the beauty that's of having a large space? Absolutely. It's a huge luxury. I mean, I'm the luckiest person in the world to have this space. And it's amazing how much value there is, at least to me, in being able to organize your own work and try mm -hmm. and see it with a fresh eye. I mean, isn't that part of what we do is to try and ambush our work by coming up on it as yeah. if we're a fresh viewer, which is very hard. I it think, is. I mean, one thing I learned in curating other people's work is that it's a lot easier for you to see their work than it is for you to see your own. Yep. And so part of moving things around and putting them together is trying to see the connections between things and seeing if they really do exist or if you're just fooling yourself yeah. into creating narratives and where there aren't any. And a space can really help you. And I can try and stage the show that I'll have in my gallery at Geary mm -hmm. by getting them out of my workspace and putting them together. And you see, hopefully, which ones are strong and which ones are weak, if they're all weak, mm -hmm. what, what you need to do to to make it better. Yeah, that's a pretty nice thing to have. I mean, I'm, I don't have a big studio. I just open the door and close it and peek in and just try to catch myself off guard. <laughs> don't we? I mean, it's you, it, you sneak around a corner, yeah. you, you turn move it upside it, down. Move it somewhere into a, you know, an adjacent room or something and just see how it looks differently. Different light situations and all that. But you're getting that in real time, which is pretty nice. Yeah, the light here is beautiful because of the skylights. Yeah. And you don't even really need these overheads. And it's... I mean, I think it's really interesting that we would do that because we it shows how important it is to get that first look. Like the first look is, I mean, people say, oh, you need longer to look at things. Yes, true, but if you don't get engaged immediately, it's over. Yeah. And so there's a huge premium on impact and how that is communicated is your task, but it's we have to figure out if we're succeeding. It's hard to make those stop in your tracks paintings. But I love it when I see one, you know, like sometimes I'll walk by a painting and just see that, like I'll stop, I'll literally stop at my tracks. And oh, that's, yeah. that's I, I think that's probably the litmus test for a great painting. And in other people's, yeah. yeah, I mean, in, in like I'm now really into Lovis Corinth, who's, mm -hmm. I mean, not necessarily part of the canon, but I, I ordered a book on Amazon of his work and I knew it a little bit, but there's some paintings I've never seen before and they just take your breath away. I mean, because yeah. to see a work by somebody that's that great that you've never seen is like it's this amazing experience so there are those stop in your tracks things yeah. other people's work that you just you, and it makes you want to be better like I wish I'd painted that right I mean the Martin Hartley show has these wave paintings there's mm -hmm. three in a row it's one I just I would give anything to have painted that painting it's got some palette knife in it too but it just yeah. like the they're just you can't even imagine I know there's some good stuff out there that's what keeps us going, right? Oh, yeah. It's like a, that drive to make that, that piece or that, that 
thing that I think it's really hard to yourself, like you're saying, someone else has to see it in a way. Like you could feel like, oh, this is a good one, and then you know you ask someone else, and like, well, that one's better, you know, or just we have a consensus develops, and yeah. that's what's interesting too. Like how much to cede credence to that as the maker? Like, do you think it should it be your dealer who decides only, or is it your friends, or do you crowd? I mean, I think it's why we put things on Instagram too to get a sense: is this good? Is it not? I mean. Studio visits can take place now yeah. in different ways. That's totally and, true. Like you know, in quotes, studio visits like it, they are kind of like studio visits because you're seeing, you're you're revealing something you kind of want. You want, you definitely want. Yeah, but I'm always thrown off by the Instagram thing because some images will get way more likes than others. But then it's like, wait, is this just because I posted it at 4:30 on a Friday, or yes, yes. which is kind of like? But Instagram has algorithms where they'll elevate them, so you don't always know how actually they're getting communicated to other people. I think so. We can't oh, yeah. always do just that. It's like they get recirculated in different feeds. <laughs> Diabolical, right. isn't it? But it's. I mean, I think. You you never just like yourself in the world your your Heideggerian relationship to the world you're you're always getting things back from other people that tell you like who you are and that right. space in between becomes how you determine <laughs> what's happening yeah. and I think one's evaluation of one's work is that way too and now yeah. it takes place on your iPhone in part not just in galleries or in studio visits yeah there's so many different ways that happens I was just listening to a podcast where the guy was talking about how pretty much everything we do in our life is for validation. Or it's kind of like, I'm worth like this, or like this, it makes you feel a certain way. It's like everything we do, like to try to get this car, to wear these clothes, whatever we're doing, it's kind of like some sort of self-validation or feeling a certain way about yourself, which is interesting because in artwork, I guess, to a large extent, that that's a part of it, you know? it's like. See, isn't this good? Don't you like looking at this? And and it's it's so frowned upon in a way. You're supposed to just make the work that you want to make that feels intrinsic and that you're pushed to do. And authentic. Yeah, like you're not trying to please other people or make something that other people just like, quote unquote. But then really, I think that's deep down. Everyone <laughs> just wants people to like their work. <laughs> oh, definitely. But I think that the going out on a limb, like there's still people who are able to reach that outer limit of their own personal zeitgeist because they take that risk yeah. and then they might, somebody, I mean, people might like it, mm -hmm. but you, you still need the risk taking to get out there far enough oh, that definitely. you differentiate yourself enough. I mean, it's, it's, I'm always surprised to see like, how did that person decide to make those things the subject matter of their paintings they must have had something to do with their own personal you know images yeah. and that's they went out on that limb so and it took some courage to do that then everybody loves it but they may not have it might not have seen that way to begin with that that right. would happen that it would be a foregone conclusion so that's why at the end of the day it's so important to just follow what you're really interested in, like the images that really move you and the, not what you think is going to be. That's completely liked, true. But just what you like. Yes, you know, I, I really believe that. if you don't that. buy it, if you're not 100% into it, how's anyone else going to get that vibe? You know? No, it's no guarantee that everybody's going to like your shtick. But mm -hmm. if you don't develop your shtick and go out on the limb as far as you can go with it, 
you know, then you don't have any hope. And yeah. I really do believe that. And being older, I definitely believe that. I've seen that. And yeah. it's that actually gives you hope because then all you have to do is believe in yourself and right. find that, pursue that. Mm-hmm. That's the thing to say to students, I think. Yeah. It's that, you know, is the, the authenticity is always sort of at the forefront of the game. Yeah. Like, believe your interests and where you want to go, and then push that as far as you could possibly push it. Yeah, and you see it, like, like in the Marine Gallus show at MoMA, at PS1 yeah. MoMA, like, there's a few really early paintings. I think I even remember when those are first exhibited, but, I mean, they were kind of brushy and mushy, and they don't have the clarity. They yeah. have the same subject matter, and you can see how she began to identify what it was that she was really interested in, and it's true with any artist's work, but it, it just, like, with that, when you think of her as having such a signature style, like there's a few early ones that, where you see she had not completely refined it. Yeah. She stuck with it and, you know, and weeded out the things that were in, extrinsic. Yeah. So, it's there's a lot of really good pedagogical things in these shows yeah. for students and thinking, you know, how you develop as an artist. Yeah, it takes a lot of pressure to make a diamond. <laughs> <laughs> Got to really push hard at that thing to get a clarity and get something beautiful out of it. You know. Right, right. I mean, whenever I think I think, oh, this is so bad. I'm this is just drac. I'm really struggling. You just think, well, no one said it was easy, and like otherwise everybody would be successful, or yeah. you know, or everybody would be just making great work. It's it isn't easy. It's yeah. clearly that's what is the what we keep pitting ourselves against. How hard it is, and I think being surrounded in this environment where there's so many good artists and good things to see, because I think there are. Uh, makes you just want to be better. Yeah. I think it's a great environment and why it's hard to be outside of it. Right. It's hard to leave it. (laughs) That's why it's been great to talk to you because I feel like it's admirable. Just you've been doing this, committed to this, and then also nurturing and, and, you know, bringing up other artists, giving other artists opportunity. And yeah, it's just been, it's been really great to talk to you today. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks for having me I've loved it. Thanks, Brian. It's been wonderful. is recorded and produced by myself, Brian Alfred. The introduction and introduction music is by Michael Lovett, who records as the musical act Nazca Lines. All other music was written and performed by myself. You can find images and information about the podcast at soundandvisionpodcast.com. You can find more about me and my artwork at paintchanger.com. Thanks for listening.